today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Interesting action this past week. Several G20 members uh, condemned Russia. Uh, they had a meeting in India, as it turned out, uh, and they condemned Russia and Vladimir Putin uh, for quitting the Black Sea grain deal at their meeting in India uh, just a few days ago. Not all of them, though. This was not a unanimous attitude because uh, I guess it's pretty obvious that the Russians have friends uh, within that group as well. Charles de la Desma has some details about what's happening there. Following two days of talks between financial leaders and policymakers, there was no final communique. Instead, India, as the host nation, was forced to issue the G20 chair's summary and an outcome document. Speaking to reporters after the meeting concluded, India's finance minister said the reason for the chair statement was because we still don't have a common language on the Russia-Ukraine war. According to this summary, China and Russia objected to paragraphs condemning the war which was drawn from last year's G20 declaration. I'm Charles Diladesma. G20, of course, is including those two, uh, which is an area of concern, by the way, for some of the other members. But uh, that's a a subplot to what's going on. Uh, To try to get a consensus, uh, I guess, is always going to be difficult for most things, but including the fact that uh, when one of the members is at war and one of their strongest allies, uh, China, uh, is is on their side when it comes to votes like this. It's the same sort of process, I think, that we see at the United Nations. Uh, so what are the implications? Uh, we'll talk to that with, about that, rather, with our next guest. Uh, he is uh, Professor Oral Brown, who is a professor of international relations and a senior member of the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto. Professor, a pleasure to have you back on the program. Thanks so much for this today. Good morning. It's, I know when you get a group like this together who have uh, very, very different views on so many issues, it's, it's understandably difficult to get a consensus. Uh, but uh, I, I guess I give you know the chair of the, this meeting credit. I mean, with Russia sitting in the room there to, to try to get a motion passed to condemn Russia for something that they've done here, uh, it was probably doomed to fail right from the outset. But it's something that I think probably had to be done anyway, wasn't it? It's a difficult situation, and it is uh, somewhat odd that Russia had been ejected from the G8, used to be the G8, now it's the G7. They were uh, suspended because of this uh, uh, all-out aggression in Ukraine, and yet they're able to get through the back door to these meetings uh, with the members of uh, the G7 who are part of the G20 uh, in another way. So it ought not be surprising that there would be uh, controversies. We also know that there's another meeting that is scheduled uh, to come up, and this is the BRICS meeting. It's supposed to take place in South Africa. And there was quite a dilemma for the South African president because South Africa is a signatory to the Rome Statute, which underpins the International Criminal Court, and the prosecutor, prosecutor of the International Criminal Court has issued Uh, an arrest warrant for Vladimir Putin. And the question that was being asked uh, was, would South Africa arrest him? And South Africa uh, is an ally, at least the government is an ally of Russia's. And it was interesting to watch all the contortions by the South African leader, who at one point said, well, you know, we couldn't arrest Vladimir Putin because it would mean war. It would be an act of war. It's as you mentioned. You you look at the the composition of this group in particular. 
Uh, and and you've got China, and that's pretty obvious, of course, where their allegiance is. I mean, they've met, they've talked. Uh, you know, they still do an awful lot of trade between the two countries. But so does India, and so does Turkey, uh, with that as well. So I mean, just how strong is this relationship, both the G seven and the the G twenty? The G seven is pretty solid because the G seven is made up of the largest uh, uh, democracies, uh, advanced uh, economies, and uh, Canada is a member of the. G7, and the G7 has repeatedly condemned Russia. So there's a strong consensus, and the G7 came out to very strongly support Ukraine. But when you get to the G20, then you have uh, a much more diffuse group, and you are quite correct that India and China and Turkey have taken advantage of the fact that Russia is very eager to sell energy, oil, natural gas, uh, fertilizer, and they have managed to get these goods probably at very, very favorable prices. Certainly, China, uh, even years ago, had made uh, a deal with Russia about uh, purchasing vast quantities of natural gas, and they still have to publish the details because many believe it would be embarrassing to Russia how many concessions they had to make. In the case of India, they have been buying oil at discounting prices. So these are the gaps in the sanctions. And of course, there's Turkey. And uh, Turkey is a member of NATO. It is supposed to be an aspirant to the EU, but they have not engaged in pursuing sanctions against Russia. And Mr. Erdogan uh, swings back and forth between mm -hmm. uh, uh, being our ally and uh, being basically someone who does the work for Vladimir Putin by having kept Sweden out for a uh, long time. And even now, uh, though he has committed himself, Mr. Erdogan, to letting Sweden in, he has delayed it. He could have taken uh, this to his parliament. Uh, they're in session until July 27th. But he said, no, no, we're not going to do it until the fall. And so he wants to extract or extort extra concessions from the West. So we have uh, uh, players who have not been helpful, to say the least, in uh, trying to bring Russia to a realistic perspective that they need to bring this war to an end. Well, and it's the politics within these decisions, I guess, that frustrates people. I'm, I'm sure you saw the story in the Globe and Mail uh, from Stephen Chase, who was just on our program just a little while ago, uh, talking about the fact that Turkey's uh, relenting uh, with the, the Swedish application for NATO uh, probably has something to do with the fact that Canada is now considering dropping the ban on selling arms and munitions to uh, Turkey. So, I mean, something had to happen. There had to be a deal made behind closed doors for them to also relent because they were so adamant in their opposition to it before. But maybe, maybe we'll get details on that later on. Uh, but I found it interesting, though, uh, Professor, uh, as we say, both China and Russia were opposed to this, uh, so that's to this motion here. Uh, and they said that, that that forum, in other words, the G20, uh, to use the quote here, was not the right place to discuss geopolitical issues. It's, it's exactly the right place, isn't it? it? It would be, and it raises questions about what precisely is the purpose. But what we see in the late 20th century, early 21st century is the remarkable proliferation of uh, international organizations. It has become virtually an industry where you have all these meetings uh, that sometimes produce substance, but often uh, they do not yield, yield very much. And when you have the kind of conflict among members, 
such starkly different views as you have in the G20, then at one level, one can say, yes, communication is good. Keeping lines of uh, communications uh, is uh, a beneficial uh, element. But at the same time, if it provides cover for aggressors, if it undermines international measures that uh, have been taken to stop aggression, then I think it's fair to ask, what is the value of these organizations? Well, exactly. And I mean, I know they had an agenda, as most of these meetings do, and, and it was. These were finance uh, people. So, you know, they wanted to talk about, uh, you know, multilateral banks and, and, and cryptocurrencies and things of this nature, all important issues. Uh, but but everything that they've got on the agenda even uh, is, is tainted by the politics that's going on these days, too. And, and you look at the nations that uh, that were opposed to the to the condemnation of Russia here, and as you mentioned, they're the ones that are still trading with them. And, and I guess there's an argument to be made, Professor, that uh, to a certain extent, those countries are helping Russia finance their war in Ukraine. Oh, absolutely. Uh, last uh, year, in, in uh, 2022, Russia made more on the sale of oil. And the largest revenue is not from natural gas. Actually, it's from the sale of oil. They received more revenue than in the previous year, even though there were supposed to be sanctions. And that is because China and India were buying Russian oil on a very, very large scale. So this is a really sharp undermining of the sanction regime that has been instituted basically by the G7 uh, countries. And so we have to ask, uh, when we look at uh, countries like India, because India is a democracy, uh, how do they reconcile supporting Russia, how do they reconcile, you know, this kind of violation of uh, an international sanctions regime with uh, the goal of promoting democracy, when what we see in the case of Russia is the undermining of democracy every single day, and an attack on a neighboring democracy in a brazen act of aggression. So this is sadly, the cynicism uh, of the international system, and uh, it is uh, difficult to uh, to to deal with. And Russia has taken advantage of this, and this is why, when we look at sanctions, when we look at trade, when we look at economic measures, we have to understand how significant those limitations are. And it tells us that if Ukraine is to prevail, it's not going through uh, to be through sanctions, though they may cause in the long term, significant damage to the Russian economy, but Ukraine has to win on the ground. And in order for Ukraine to win on the ground, what the West has been doing so far simply has not been adequate because we have delivered the weapons Ukraine has been pleading for, always late, always in smaller measures, and they cannot win this war with a trickle. There has to be a flood of uh, armaments that gives them the capacity to, to end the aggression that uh, Russia has engaged in. I mean, they've been in uh, uh, this mode of aggression since 2014, but it was an all-out aggression in February of last year, and Ukraine has been paying a very, very heavy price for the fact that uh, we too often have relied on economic sanctions to the job, when unfortunately... Uh, the military dimension uh, is now the most important element in defeating Russian aggression. Well, and as you and I have talked about in the past, uh, the sanctions 
I understand why they're given. They're trying to squeeze the, the Russian economy, uh, and that's you know it's it's worked before, and I know it's it's had some impact. As a matter of fact, those sanctions uh, I think you mentioned to us actually started back uh, the first time they invaded uh, Ukraine uh, some years ago. That's when they got booted out of the G eight at the same time, and they imposed these sanctions. Uh, but there's a way around them, isn't there? There's always a back door, which is what they've done with these other countries. Uh, militarily, there is no back door. I mean, it's it's a full frontal attack. Uh, to try to, to push that, that Russian army back and across the border. Uh, financial sanctions, I think there's a strong argument to be made now, Professor, that they're not really that effective. They have not been as effective as, for example, the Biden administration believed. You will recall that at the time of the invasion, President Biden said, uh, when he was asked by reporters, what is the impact of sanctions? Because still the United States was not providing anywhere close to the weapons that Ukraine was pleading to, to get. And President Biden said, well, you know, you have to wait two, three months. The Russians don't know what they're up against. You will see how the sanctions will be incredibly powerful and they will have an effect. Well, this was naive to say the least. Uh, and uh, so uh, we saw movement on the ground when the West began to provide more of the armaments that they uh, were requested to give to Ukraine, but they've been so slow. I mean, uh, how long ago has it been that Ukrainians had been asking for tanks from the West? And now you have a trickle, even now it's not a very large number. How long has it been that they've been pleading for Western aircraft? They may get F-16s, but not uh, immediately. It's going to take a while. It takes time to train pilots. Well, why are we only starting now? Uh, how long did it take to provide longer range missiles. So all of these things have been a factor where the reluctance, the timidity of the West, the absence of real leadership, where Germany, uh, the largest player in Europe, the United States basically have been competing how to best avoid providing leadership, hiding behind each other. Uh, this has cost the Ukrainians a vast amount of money. And with sanctions, I have to say that, yes, sanctions were began in 2014. But if you look at the large corporation ba uh, corporations back then, the head of the largest French oil company, Total, Christophe de Marjorie, rushed to Moscow in 2014, stood with Putin and said, oh, no, no, we're not going to buy by sanctions. It's going to be business as usual. Well, it's not as bad now, but we certainly gave the wrong impression to Russia. We fundamentally uh, created this belief in the case of the Russian leader that the most the West would do would be sanctions. And those sanctions are not effective because Western companies will invariably put profits before principle. Excellent. And we've seen that happen. And, uh, you know, they seem to have lost the whole concept here. This is not an economic conflict. This is a military conflict. Uh, and it has to be met in, in the same fashion. But uh, hopefully that message will, will finally get to some of the members anyway. Professor, always a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for this today. Thank you for having me on. Take care. Professor Oral Brown uh, from the Global Affairs Department in the University of Toronto. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.